Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes in our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we've discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what film we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes facts about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Released in June of 1983, War Games made young Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy movie stars, while it irrevocably changed our views of how computers could work and what dangers hacking those computers could do to the national security of our country. Our razor-sharp script, standout performances, and what was considered cutting-edge technology at the time, war games changed the way political thrillers have been made ever since. Would you like to play a game? (laughs) All right, well, that's the movie we're going to talk about this week on our episode of the 80s Flick Flashback. I'm your host, Tim Williams, and today I've got my good friend, Mr. Chris McMitchin, uh, well-known here in the Henry County area as a long-term educator and uh, all-around good guy, so... Everybody say hello to Chris McMitchin and Chris say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. <laughs> All right. So War Games is uh, an old favorite. So let's talk about when was the first time did you you saw War Games? Did you see it in the theaters or on VHS, on cable? What was your first exposure to it? Yes, uh, I grew up in a family where we loved and appreciated movies. At You know, we, we did basically – two things that were fun, you know, on weeknights or weekend nights when we could get away and have Mm -hmm. time to do it. And that uh, we'd go to a local putt-putt place that existed in Forest Park at the time and and hit the ball around. We enjoyed that a lot. And we also enjoyed going to movies a lot. So we did a good bit of both of those. I did see War Games for the first time Mm -hmm. in the theater. Uh, As a a very young guy, you know, at the time, it was a very, very different, you know, experience then. Because it had more of the thriller, like we're all going to die kind of, you <laughs> right, know, right. kind of outlook for me at the time. Uh, looking back and seeing it now, it, it seems a little uh, obviously less believable in certain places. Right. But 
but at the time, it really made a pretty big impact. I, I saw it in theater yeah. the first time. Yeah, I I don't have a specific memory of seeing it in the theater, but I'm pretty sure I did. Kind of the same thing as you growing up. Our family, we, we were moviegoers, at, you know, as a kid, or as I was a kid being moviegoers, and it was always like a – Usually like a Saturday afternoon matinee kind of a thing, or even like a Friday or some special more like a Friday night. But um, I wish we would have done putt putt every week. That would have been fun. But <laughs> but it was usually like you know um, going out to eat. Maybe I mean, back when Taco Bell was you know more, a little bit more prime uh, spot to go out to eat. Uh, it was still kind of fast food, but that was so different. Uh, but yeah, uh, but I remember. I think I saw. I want to say it was probably like a Saturday afternoon matinee, like a Saturday movie, like a couple of friends. Um, like I was able to bring a friend of mine to go see it. But yeah, the kind of the same thing. I, there's a lot of it going back to look at it. Like there's no way I could have understood what all of this meant when I first saw it. I mean, it was probably way over my head as far as the uh, the dangers and how really dangerous it was. Like to me, it was just the story, just something made up. You know, computers. I mean, we didn't. I didn't know anything about computers back then. I didn't see a computer. We, we didn't have them in our homes like we do now. Um, but my mm. dad, being in the military, being in the army, uh, there were certain things that you know I could kind of connect with or whatever. But um, but I remember there were going back and watching it now. There were certain scenes that I definitely remembered, and I know even though I saw it in the theater, I remember it being on cable as a kid and watching it again you know, several times and like certain things are just kind of burned in my memory. Um, Definitely. Uh, and we'll kind of get to those things. So how long has it been since you saw it before you watched it yesterday? A long time. <laughs> it's been, you know, they don't, they don't play it anymore yeah. that I know of on regular TV or cable or anything like that. You, I just, you have, don't have access to it necessarily. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I kind of have, I, I think after it was, out in the theaters, like you said, it was a pretty popular TV, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, movie oh, that yeah. they showed several times. It would show on networks like TBS mm -hmm. or something like that. And until so I would see it again, and I had seen it several times, yes. uh, but it was much closer to the release. It's been <laughs> many, many years since I've seen it yeah. before yesterday. Yeah, with it so. being a PG movie, and, and it's pretty, fairly clean overall for even for a PG movie of that time. Oh, sure. um, you know, mm -hmm. it, it I'm sure it was easy to play on TV without having to change too much of it. So, um, yeah. And I think it was, you know, I think it was good. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit. Uh, oh, for me, it's been, um, it hasn't been, it's been long. It hasn't been that long. I, I remember my wife, Tyra and I, it was like a Saturday morning. We had, you know, I think this was beforehand I was born. So over 10 years ago, but since we've been married, I remember waking up on a Saturday morning and it coming on one of the, one of the channels, like back, I guess maybe one of the cable channels or whatever. And I was like, oh man, I haven't seen this in a long time. And we just kind of, you know, piddled around the house and had it on the TV. So I, I remember sort of watching it, but not sitting down and really kind of wanting to watch it from beginning to end like I did for this one. But before then it had had, you know, it had to have been 20 plus, maybe 30 years from that point. Well, I guess I would have been, yeah, long time, 20 plus years. Let's not talk about how old we, how old we are, right. but I will say, I will say sure. the biggest thing I picked up from this movie, watching it again, it made me realize how old I really am because of how dated all the technology and the, the phones and all that kind of stuff. Uh, all that just made me, it made me laugh. Some of that stuff like, man, that was cutting edge back then. And now it's like to think of a, think of a computer taking up the side, that whole room 
and we walk around with computers in our hand now, it just, it kind of blows my mind. So. Yeah. And computers with uh reel to reel tape on them. <laughs> yeah, that was like, wow. Oh yeah. I, oh, yeah. Like you said, we've got more computing power in, you know, in this setup yeah. for this podcast than we probably had in that whole building. Oh yeah. Time. Oh yeah. Well then, and you know, and we'll kind of jump in it now, but you know, the, the Whopper, the big computer was actually made of wood. Yeah. Like it was a total wood shell <laughs> with a bunch of lights on it. And uh, the director wanted like, he wanted it to have blink, bright blinking lights. So it have some sort of a personality, give it more of a human feel. But the, uh, the little, the little time display that showed like how much time toward, you know, when they were, once he restarted the game, like there was a guy inside the shell in the wood on an Apple II computer. And he was literally typing in those numbers, like typing them or like hitting a button to make the time. Like it wasn't pre-programmed like we could do now. Like he had to literally sit in that box and click a button to make each one, you know, uh, each part of that thing move same with the lights so I was like wow that's just that's just crazy yeah it's interesting too you, you bring up that little uh, timer piece one of the things I took away from watching it yesterday is that it's it's almost like a, a flaw in the movie design because the guy who was uh, you know destined and his job was to take care of the whopper and you know maintain it right, the maintenance right. guy oh, yeah, of the yeah, whopper it's yes. caretaker guy, yeah. right? The bald dude. Um, he, I, I, I guess he never noticed that little time display <laughs> thing on there because they, they never were, talked about it right. being a yeah, game going right. on. <laughs> but you would think that he would have noticed a big time display counting down and come and told somebody, you know, hey, General, we've only got 16 <laughs> hours left. That's, you know, that's true. I, <laughs> didn't, I didn't think about that, that they never really talk about the time. They're, they're concerned about the nope. DEF CON issues and – so yeah, where was that display even at? Like for him to not even see it. But I guess it's such a big a big machine, you're not even thinking to look for that little panel or whatever. So yeah. The other thing that yeah. I remembered when it started, um, and we're totally we're totally going off the normal path, but that's okay. Every podcast should be different. Um, but when they when they introduced David, <laughs> uh, Matthew Broderick's character at the very beginning, he's playing video games and then he goes to school. Yes. And I remembered like as soon as it started, I was like, I remember thinking this last time, like how early did he get up in the morning to go play video games before he goes to school? But I noticed this time, like they have a shot of the little snack bar and he's like some fries and a Coke, like nobody's serving fries and a Coke for breakfast. So I had to, my mind had to like justify maybe this wasn't in the morning. Maybe that he went there during his lunch break and like that was his lunch time, and then went to the classroom. So anyway, that yeah. it always bothered me the first time or like the last time I'd seen it about, why would he be in the in an arcade before school started? Um, but it wasn't just him though; like tons of kids in there, and they all started to run at the same time. And yeah. I was like, "Well, back then, uh, you know, maybe you, you know, high school, you could maybe in California, where he was in Oregon, technically, even though all of us, most of it was filmed in California. Um, he was, you know, that was their lunch; they had a full period or full time for lunch, and they just were able to go off campus and then come back. Obviously, he didn't do very well because he was too late for class, but. When I um, student taught uh, in South Carolina at Spring Valley High School, it was actually something called an open campus okay. lunch school, which meant that um, almost everybody on campus at a mm -hmm. certain point in the day, um, you know, where the lunch period would be, had about 45 minutes to an hour okay. to go and do lunch yeah. and come back. 
And um, it was, you know, a lot of the kids, of course, just lived right there in that community. So they could go home for lunch and come back if they could travel. And then the cafeteria was still open for kids who couldn't travel on right. their own and that kind of thing. But very, very unusual concept. You don't ever see that no, here in no. Georgia. Uh, it could have been a situation yeah. like that. That's yeah. Possible. When I lived in, uh, we lived in Maryland for uh, a couple of years, and the high school there, I was there for ju- uh, freshman and sophomore year, and their lunch was mm-hmm. considered an actual full period. Like they didn't have abbreviated periods for your lunchtime. Like you, you know, you either got things like seven periods of the day, and you either got lunch during in third, fourth, fifth, or sixth. Like they didn't have it at the very end of the day or the very beginning of the day. And it was a full hour. Now we weren't allowed to leave campus, even though people still did. And you try. I I will admit I was guilty. I went with some friends one time, and we went off campus and pray. I prayed the whole time that I wouldn't get pulled right. over and get get caught. But anyway, sorry, right. Dad. Sorry, Mom. Uh, but but yeah, but we had a full period for lunch, um, and we could and you can. So most people did their homework. That's where I learned how to play card card games because you'd eat in mm-hmm. like fifteen twenty minutes. You still had another 30, 30 minutes of lunch period time. So. That's what we did. So, sure. all right. Well, cool. let's talk a little bit about how War Games came to be. So, I'm going to read some stuff here and uh, just stay with us. So, before it became a story that blended the rise of hackers and personal computing with the ongoing threats of the Cold War, War Games was an idea called the Genius. It began when co-writer Lawrence Lasker saw a TV documentary that featured Stephen Hawking. Lasker became fascinated by the idea that Hawking's work could lead him to essentially solve all the mysteries of the universe, but his ALS might prevent him from even being able to share that knowledge. Lasker saw an opportunity for a story that would pair a Hawking-like older genius in a wheelchair with a precocious teenage genius still looking for his place in the world and took that idea to Walter F. Parks, an old college roommate. With the blessing of executive producer Lauren, I mean Leonard Goldberg, who was intrigued by the idea, Lasker and Parks embarked on a period of research in 1979 that eventually led them to futurist Peter Schwartz at the Stanford Research Institute. After hearing the story idea, Schwartz made a connection between brilliant young kids playing computer games and experimenting with hacking and bright adults working in environments like NORAD, looking at radar screens and missile targeting, targeting displays. That led Lasker and Parks down a new research road that ultimately also included the rise of home computers. After a few different permutations, the story that ultimately became War Games was born. Even as the story evolved from a film about an older genius passing his wisdom on to a young protege into a film about a teen hacker accidentally playing global thermonuclear war, Lasker and Parks held on to the idea that the Dr. Stephen Falcon character would be based heavily on Stephen Hawking. They envisioned him as a dying genius still holding on to a few secrets and even wrote the character as using a motorized wheelchair. In thinking of whom they might cast to play this kind of mythic persona, Lasker and Parks had a very clear idea. They wanted John Lennon of the Beatles, whom Parks described as kind of a quote-unquote spiritual cousin to Hawking. That plan, of course, had to be set aside when Lennon was shot and killed on December 8, 1980. The role of Dr. Falcon ultimately went to veteran English actor John Wood, As for the wheelchair, original director Martin Brest ditched the idea because he thought having a famous scientist in a motorized wheelchair in the war room scenes would remind the audiences of Dr. Strangelove a little too much. So Hmm. interesting how it started with one idea and then kind of morphed into something else. So, uh, but you know, it's funny when I think about war games, I don't think of it 
I don't think of it as that kind of story of the older genius, younger genius. I guess it really, it really evolved totally different from that because Falcon really becomes a very small character in this version that we really don't really know anything about until the very end. So what do you think? You think if they would have went with the first idea would have been as successful? Well, I don't know. I, I certainly think that most of his character exposure was brought on through right, David's right. research of him in the beginning first, right. you know, the first half of the movie. Right. And that's where you really pick up uh, the empathy that you have from mm-hmm. him, which is unusual about a character. Usually you pick up empathy for a character and you start feeling emotionally connected to them by mm-hmm. watching them on screen and the way they interact with other characters and actions they, they have. But in this case, it's very much the story about yeah. his son yeah. and wife right. who get an accident and, you know, the whole idea of that Joshua, that was where all that was born and his connection to his son obviously plays a huge pe- oh, yeah. piece in this movie. But I, I think it is interesting. The other thing that, that's cool is that the just the name, you know, Stephen Falcon and <laughs> Stephen Hawking, you know, Hawking, we're, are very yeah. closely related. So that certainly makes sense and a nice nod to uh, the original yeah. idea there. And then, I, you know, I'm. I don't say I'm too young, but I don't know enough about the Beatles and John Lennon to kind of see him in that character role. I mean, I can't see anybody else in that role besides who we have. I don't know if that would have made it mm. any better or any worse, but it's interesting. That was who they were. They were really looking to cast in that, in that role. And for what I understand, they had, they had already had talks with him about being a part of it in its early stages of development. So, you know, interesting. Wow. So I mentioned, yeah, so I mentioned about, you know, the original director. So they there there were two directors in this movie, and I didn't know that until starting to do the research here. But Martin Brest was hired to direct War Games, and he immediately began developing a new draft of the script with Lasker and Parks. But tonal clashes soon ensued. Brest envisioned the film as more of a dark thriller and less of a fun hacker adventure, something that was reflected in both the writing and the footage he delivered to the studio when War Games finally began shooting. Though he seemed to be winning the battle over the script, Brest's footage wasn't what the studio wanted. The film's young stars, Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy, were shaken by the news after Brest took them for a walk and told them he was leaving the production. Both were worried they'd be replaced, and according to Broderick, other supporting roles were already being replaced at that point. But Brest remained calm and assured them they'd keep their jobs and still end up with a good movie. Days later, John Batham, who had just made Saturday Night Fever, was brought in to direct the film. As for Brest, he landed on his feet. His next film was the massive comedy hit Beverly Hills Cop starring Eddie Murphy. According to Batum, at least two contributions from Brest's shooting days remain in the film. The scene in which David goes to visit two fellow computer nerds to ask for help and the scene in which David stops at a payphone after sneaking out of Milrad. So he got a little bit of his his stuff in there. And uh, there was another thing I, I read that said because, uh, because Martin Brest had had directed everything much darker, like darker tones and darker colors, that even some of the footage they tried to use, they had to uh, they had to try to change the lighting or, you know, how back then when it was actually on film, they had to kind of change some of the exposures mm-hmm. to make it match the later later pieces. So I thought that was interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's unique. I, I didn't know yeah. any of that. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about the casting. So um, talked about Matthew Broderick, 
Ali Sheedy. Um, interesting about this movie so far, a lot of the movies that we, well, this is our fourth movie. So all the movies we've seen so far, but there's always talk mm-hmm. about other people that were cast for this, this movie. I couldn't find anything in my research besides the John Lennon thing. So I, you know, about who else might've auditioned for these roles. Um, so I don't know if, Matthew Broderick, Ali Sheedy, they were all, you know, the first choices. I think I did see some see something where Ali Sheedy auditioned like four months before she was actually cast for the for the movie. So it was a long, maybe a long longer casting process. But uh, this was Matthew Broderick's first major starring role. And this one thing I didn't know until this that he turned down the role of Alex B. Keaton in the TV show Family Ties to make this movie instead. Yeah, the role of Alex, of course, went to Michael J. Fox, but Broderick went on to be a major movie star mm-hmm. with other 80s films like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Project X, Biloxi Blues, and Glory. So I didn't realize this was his first like major acting role. No, I, I didn't know that either until you just mentioned it, but I did. I was struck yesterday by seeing it again yeah. as to how young he really oh, yeah, yeah. looks and is in this movie. I mean, you know, we think about Matthew Broderick in yeah. some of those later films and he looked older. He's, you know, more yeah. like a, a young man, you know, and but in this one, yeah, he's I, just I, I a thought kid about it really. watching this because like he looks young and I don't know what his age, actual age was in filming this. But then I look, this was this was released yeah. in 83. So it's probably made around 82. And then Ferris Bueller, which is his most famous probably teenage role, was made in 87, where he's basically playing mm-hmm. the same age. You're thinking a junior, senior in high school. So there's a good five year difference yeah. between Ferris Bueller and his character here, basically playing the same age, which he pulls both of them off pretty well. Of course, different circumstances and totally different kind of movies. So, but I thought that was interesting. Helps yeah. to have that little baby face oh, yeah. he's got oh, to go with. So, but I've always liked Modric- Matthew Broderick. I mean, I think that was, you know, of course, seeing this probably early on was probably a good reason why I watched a lot of his movies going forward. So. Um, I've always liked him as an actor. Um, and then Ali Sheedy, um, she had a recurring role on the TV show Hill Street Blues when she filmed War Games. She went on to star in other 80s movies like The Breakfast Club, The Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, and the much beloved Short Circuit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yes. yeah, I can't really imagine anybody else in that role. I mean, it's not a huge, huge role that she had, but I think it was still important especially in the beginning of the film to kind of um, kind of show us what kind of character David was, that he wasn't just a screw up that he really, you know, did care about, you know, other things. So, uh, and then Dabney mm-hmm. Coleman, who has always been one of my favorites. Um, he was known in the late, late seventies and early eighties for playing swarmy selfish characters in films like nine to five, another personal favorite modern problems and Tootsie. This was one of the first films where he showed a more understanding and caring side of the character. So, which I thought was pretty neat. So, yes, he still is still yeah. kind of yeah. a villainous role, though. I mean, even even at that. And I think that the, the smarmy, <laughs> you know, idea is still his oh, yeah. character still has Especially a little bit of that in this. Yeah. But I think that's kind of what makes him good at what he does. He's so good in those roles. Uh, it just kind of fits him oh, yeah, like definitely. a glove pretty well. Yeah, I think that, yeah, just like, yeah, he, he, he definitely has that swarmy character at the beginning, but as the movie progresses, you know, he kind of starts to understand David, you know, realizing that it's, it's true. So, 
Uh, I thought it was good casting on that. Uh, one thing mm-hmm. I noticed, I don't know if you noticed this at the beginning, but in the opening scene uh, with the two guys that go into the silo, uh, those are er- appearances from Eric. Nah, say it again. The opening scenes feature an appearance very early in the career of Michael Madsen, who later went on to major movie stardom in numerous hit films, including Free Willy, Reservoir Dogs, Species, and Kill Bill. He's a big favorite of Tarantino, if you're a Tarantino fan. And then John Spencer, who was the other one uh, in that scene, he would also go to become a big star, starring for several seasons on TV shows like The West Wing and L.A. Law. So I did recognize them. Mm-hmm. I think I recognized uh, John Spencer first. And the other one, I was like, is that Michael Madsen? Like, I, it, it looks so different. But that was interesting. I, I love that's one of my favorite things about watching these old 80s movies is you finding these, uh, you know, more established actors now who are just getting their start in those really, really small roles. So that was cool to see them in that that opening sequence. So, yeah, and you know, you mentioned that uh, there was some dark tones in yeah. some of the first director's cuts. If I had to guess, before you had told me that, I would have thought that opening scene oh, yeah, was yeah. one of those darker moments because I remember, I, I I know as a as a child that scene is one that elicited mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. good bit of fear for me. <laughs> and, you know, turn your key, sir. Oh yeah. Hold the, I mean, and and then I, I thought yesterday though. I, this is a little bit off that topic, but what purpose was he serving <laughs> in shooting that guy? Because there's no way right. he could reach the other key. There's no his law. Yeah. His arm wasn't long enough. That's why he had to have two. I guess it was more. Know, it was, but yeah. but that was very. Yeah, well, that was a very dark opening that's though. Things, for like, the, going back and watching it now, like that's that's a scene that I don't really remember. Like when that, when that, when it started that way, I was like, I don't remember any of this. Like, I don't, this is not what I remember war games being. Um, and maybe, maybe because it was traumatic as a child, I blocked it out of my memory. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. That's real possible. Hi, I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some of our favorite scenes we're already there. So any, any scenes or your favorite or things that stood out to you um, that you remember as a kid that were, that still, you know, had the same good nostalgia to it, watching it again? Well, I, I like the um, scene of where he's locked in the yeah. infirmary and he's trying to get out. And he's like <laughs> MacGyver before yeah, MacGyver yeah. was MacGyver. Right. So he gets, he's like looking around to try to figure out a way to get out of this locked infirmary because he knows he's got to try to find right. Falcon for real. That's going to be the thing that can help. He thinks at that moment that Falcon, if he can actually find him, can just right. make a phone right. call and make all this go away. So he's got to get out of the infirmary. So he finds in that, you know, underneath yeah. oh, the yeah, drawer, yeah. he moves one drawer out and he's finds a little tape recorder and, and uh, even that's dated mm-hmm. technology, <laughs> little bitty small, you know, micro recorder. And he and he hooks that thing up to record the sounds of the keypad door so that he can, you know, right. enter and exit as he needs to just using the recording. So mm-hmm. I, I'm fond of that scene. I thought it was good. I, I'm always 
I've always kind of be, been a good yeah. MacGyver fan, you know. I think that's a cool, uh, a cool concept. Um, I, I obviously like the ending scene too very much. The, you know, most of the scenes in the yeah. big yeah. NORAD yeah. bunker, I like. Uh, you know, it's just so so huge. Uh, I will ask you because I don't know. Was that actually NORAD or was that just a scenes? Do you have any idea if that was the real deal? And so, uh, yes, I do have this uh, little note. The NORAD command center built for the movie was the most expensive set ever constructed up to that time. Uh, Built at the cost of $1 million. The producers were not allowed into the actual (laughs) NORAD command center, so they had to imagine what it would be like. In the DVD commentary, director John Badham notes that the actual NORAD command center isn't nearly as elaborate as the one in the movie. And I think I saw something (laughs) like later where um, I didn't write it all down because a lot of information. But when people actually started doing tours of that center, because it was actually there in the Cheyenne uh, Cheyenne Mountains there. Um, It's been moved since then to Colorado. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when they would do tours, people wanted to see all the high tech stuff that they had seen in the movie, but all the stuff there was like they said it was mm-hmm. like nineteen fifties era technology, so it was nothing near as you know up to date. And they said after so many people kept complaining about it, they actually decided to go ahead and upgrade a lot of stuff and make it look a little bit more flashy uh, for the visitors that would come. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Wow. It's really kind of scary that a that a movie about military war was yeah. ahead of the actual military. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the technology of it all, you know, and, and like you said, it's so it's so old school oh, yeah, compared yeah. to what it is even now. But so I wasn't aware of that was the real bunker or not. Oh, yeah. It certainly yeah. was believable. I'll say that all those mm-hmm. people in uniform and you know, I mean, the various stations. It reminded me too, you know, the way it was set mm-hmm. up, kind of in tiers, levels and tiers of a lot of movies you see yeah. involving oh, yeah, yeah. space programs where yeah, like NASA. Apollo 11 yeah. um, right. or Apollo 13 and you have um, movies like um, mm-hmm. The Martian, you know, where they have all those tiers of people in the computer screens and they're all doing their oh, own yeah, yeah. you know, specific jobs. It was set up a lot like that. So I thought that added to the realism of those scenes in the bunker. I really like a lot of those. The, the last one, I think, where the computer, mm-hmm. of course, is is learning yeah. from the tic tac toe, and it and then it switches from mm-hmm. the tic tac toe playing itself. You know, so many times right. realizing the futility of that game, and then trying to take that to the big idea of global thermonuclear war. And oh yeah, well nobody can win at this either. And then the you know the conflict where it, it, he's you know Whopper's trying to start yeah. all yeah, the yeah. missiles from different, different places scenarios. in the world. Yeah. And, and trying to see if it's going to make a different yeah, a difference in the yeah. outcome, and it never does. It's going faster and faster and faster, and you can really sense uh-huh. that that it's learning, it's really picking up speed, and it's and you're trying to encourage it. I think it it kind of makes uh-huh. your heart beat a little faster. In in the, it's a tempo oh, yeah. thing. I think that yeah. was really well done. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about that scene too because it's kind of cool. Like once again, talking about cutting at that time, cutting edge technology. Um, so today, if you wanted to reproduce the climactic scene in which the Joshua computer plays out every possible nuclear war scenario on the giant NORAD screens, uh, it would be relatively easy. More than three decades ago, before computer generation images were in nearly every blockbuster, 
it was quite a bit more difficult, particularly because the screens and the actual NORAD were nowhere near as complex as what the filmmakers envisioned. To make it work, the filmmakers had to make sure every screen in the war room was in sync with every other screen. And they had to do it all in camera rather than relying on post-production effects. To do that, five film projectors were set up in the back of the room to project the correct images onto the five biggest screens on the war room wall. While seven other projectors were behind the wall, we're projecting images onto the screen. Uh, where I lost my place. <laughs> rear project on, on, on the, okay. For the small, uh, we're projecting images onto the seven smaller screens beneath the big ones on the same wall. To make matters more complicated, all 84 video screens representing the war room's computers had to also be synced up. The visual effects supervisor, Michael L. Fink, had to build what how to build what was at the time the brightest strobe system for 24 frames per second filmmaking in the world to make the strobe effects you see when the explosions go off on the screens. All of that was controlled from an mm -hmm. Apple II computer. It was an amazing confluence of a lot of emerging technologies, Fink said. So yeah, I mean, I mean, and that's probably that's what, cool. five minutes of filming that they had to put all that work in to make it look as real, or what they would consider as real as possible. So yeah, that was pretty cool. Yes. Like, I didn't realize that it's all real projections to make those kind of computer screens look real. And I did see read something where uh, mm -hmm. all the scenes at the beginning with David's typing um, at the beginning, they had to rig it where no matter what he typed, what would come up on the screen was actually what was supposed to be on the screen. So even though he had to like in pre-production, he spent months playing Galaga and other video games to look like he was proficient in playing and he had to take typing. But he said he played more, he spent more time playing the video games and typing. So they had to make it look like <laughs> they had to fix it where he couldn't really have to type, you know, as, as fast as he was doing in the movie. So, but, yeah. Just on a side note, I'm glad it chose oh, really? Galaga because that was my go-to game always in the video arcade. It was oh, either that or Tron way back in the day. I love those. I was, those uh, those were great. Space Invaders, but that was more Atari. I wasn't a big arcade person, like in the arcade, mm -hmm. until much later, and then it was a little mm -hmm. bit more advanced stuff. But um, oh, Pac-Man was probably that was the game that I Pac-Man. I used to have the Pac-Man and Galaga machines where it would like you could one on either side. So. Yeah. Yep. We're old kids. We are. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't but think true. I had necessarily a favorite scene of the movie. There's a lot of scenes that I remembered that were kind of burned in my memory. The one scene that I remembered was when he's leaving the Seven Eleven and all the government cars pull up and take him out, take him away. Like that scene for some reason I remember that. Uh, and maybe it maybe because it freaked me out as a kid thinking about a bunch of government vehicles coming up and taking you away. Um, and then I, I even watched it again yesterday when he was, I like the scene, like you said, coming out of the infirmary. I remember that scene. That's one, that's probably one of my favorite scenes as well. But when he got, when he got out, I was yeah. like, he's going to end up under the stairs. I remembered the scene of him under the stairs. For some reason, that scene was just emblazoned in my memory of him being under the stairs. Um, and so, uh, but I, I remember that. And then of course the end, uh, I remembered I, I remember that he was going to get to a point where they were going to play tic-tac-toe, but I couldn't remember how they got there, how they got to that point. Um, so, but yeah, some really, really good scenes in the movie. Um, 
trying to think of anything else um, about the technology. One thing yeah. I'll tell you for sure, as an educator, the opening scene where the, the yeah, educator, yeah. the teacher, their teacher, you know, is handing back yeah, their yeah, yeah. Um, F's on their papers right. and showing everybody and yeah. discouraging them at the same time <laughs> would never be able to happen in today's climate. <laughs> Oh yeah, you'd be out of a job in a heartbeat right. if you treated kids like that guy did. Good that scene. I was like, well, this is really good because Chris, being a teacher, I'm sure he can re- either relate or you know be like, that's totally inaccurate. Like, well, I thought about that too. Is like, I could see him giving David his F when he shows up to class, but then why had she not gotten hers sure. until after that? You know, so because uh, you think. It's like yeah, he's waiting yeah, on exactly. times to embarrass people. <laughs> now it's your turn. Here we go. And then, yeah, and the other the other scene that I remember too was him finding like him getting in trouble to go to the principal's office so he could find the password, and then all the passwords were written on a little piece of paper in the drawer, which I thought was really funny. Um, looking back on it now, because mm-hmm. even back then, not really known pa- how important pat like passwords are, is is life now for us, but back then you weren't thinking about passwords or, you know, for, for things like that. So, um, security. The other scene, I thought, the other scene I thought was pretty cool is that, um, when, we, we, you know, I, I expected you kind of play along in your mind and think, well, okay, we thought right. Falcon was dead all this time. Then we realized, okay, Hey, he might be right. alive and just in hiding. Well, right. when, when they got to his, you know, <laughs> yeah. Goose Creek Road, right. you know, right. I, his little island where he is, right. Right. I expected him to be surrounded by computers oh, yeah, yeah. and technology and all this. In the movie, yeah. in the script, went the other way with it. And now he's yeah. researching dinosaurs mm-hmm. and things of prehistoric times and how the, you know, the first big... Uh, right. extinction event came about right i think that the idea of working with all those games especially you know getting to the level that he did as a military mm-hmm. obviously a military contractor trying to help them invent the whopper and those kind of you know sub programs and things oh, maybe yeah. it soured him to the idea of that or just maybe he's he maybe he just decided well we're all going to be extinct because mm-hmm. you know that's what was on his mind the military had paid him to say, all right, teach this computer to do this, you know, World War Three mm-hmm. playout over and over and over and over again. You know, the caretaker of the Whopper guy has that line in there and says that he's, you know, played that uh, he's played World War Three in his, mm-hmm. you know, own computer's mind so many times already. He's already played, you know, done the whole war from right. many right. different, you know, perspectives. Right. I thought it was interesting how he went to the prehistoric yeah. dinosaur side yeah. when you saw him. I did think that was interesting. You know, I guess that's kind of yeah, they kind of tied that in with, you know, the death of his son and daughter. And like, once again, having that epiphany of like, what's really important, you know, maybe working with the government and trying to figure out how to blow mm-hmm. people up isn't as important as figure out, you know, how to how to continue to live um, and by studying, you know, the prehistoric kind of stuff. So it was interesting. I will say it was interesting to know that his home, uh, that that the shots of his home were actually built on a soundstage at MGM Studios. Most of the set pieces are from Little House on the Prairie and old dinosaur movies. So the little pterodactyl he was flying was probably some prop they found. Like, hey, let's use this. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So uh, maybe right, so. Here's kind of the big, you know, we'll, we'll start to kind of bring it to a close here. But uh, one of the big things that I thought was really interesting about this mm-hmm. was how this movie actually changed government policies. So. War Games opened on June 3rd, 1983, to critical acclaim and box office success and ended up 
earning three Academy Award nominations for Best Original Screenplay, Best Sound, and Best Cinematography. During opening weekend, moviegoers broke into spontaneous applause when Joshua declared, the only winning move is not to play, a peaceful message in the midst of the Cold War. The film garnered a lot of fans, but perhaps none more famous than the President of the United States at the time, Ronald Reagan, who saw the film during an opening weekend screening at Camp David, arranged by Lasker. Reagan was fascinated by the film so much that the following week, he stopped a meeting regarding upcoming nuclear negotiations with the Russians to give everyone in the room a full breakdown of the plot of the movie. When he was finished, he asked General John W. Mm -hmm. Vesey Jr., then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to look into just how plausible the film was. Vesey did some research and determined that War Games actually was a was a prescient indicator of a rising threat in the then very new world of cybersecurity. A little more than a year later, Reagan signed a classified national security directive titled National Policy on Telecommunications and Automated Information System Security. It was the first computer security directive given by a president, all because he'd seen a movie about a kid who wanted to play some computer games. And then also found out that mm -hmm. hacking did not become illegal until like 1990. So it took seven years before they actually made hacking illegal. And what's, what carries this movie forward in its reality is the threat that hackers continue oh, yeah. to have oh, yeah. in today's society. You hear about it. I mean, everything from identity theft all the way up to, you know, influencers on, you know, things like Twitter, Facebook, those kind of things. You hear about foreigners, you know, potentially, and, and I'm sure Americans do the, the same exact things, you mm -hmm. know, for, to better our interests. But uh, hacking, like you said, it, it may not it may not be legal any longer, uh, <laughs> oh, but yeah. it certainly is prevalent. It's uh, certainly something. And, you know, you, you you I think it continues to remind us that there's always a chance yeah. that something could go wrong. I mean, we're yeah. so computer dependent. Even even then, it was it was a simple mm -hmm. matter of calling all those numbers and then breaking you know one password oh, yeah, code. Definitely. It's not that way anymore. You know, it's, it's much more difficult. But the hackers, I think, are much better than David. You know, was oh, yeah. the movie. Yeah, it's <laughs> much more depth. About, so. like, like thinking about what this kind of, this movie, the other things this movie kind of set up. I think I read somewhere that this was the first time the word firewall in regards to the security was used, and how many times we hear that in like. TV shows, hmm. and then it made me, I mean, it made me chuckle watching when they talked about the back door. Like, oh, when I create a program, I create a back door, and like, yeah. and we were fans of the shows like Twenty Four back in the day, like you know, not so as long ago, but like a show like Twenty Four exists because of a movie like War Games, where it's all you know, all the computer tech people that work on the good side, like trying to find the back doors and ways to hack into things. You know, hackers now are, are, you know, and a lot of TV shows now are more like heroes because they're using their hacking for, you know, quote unquote hacking for good. So I, it's, it's interesting to see how, once again, uh, yeah. you know, 1983, 2020, that, you know, what kind of spawned an idea. Uh, because then they were saying it back then, like when we talked about passwords, back then they weren't really thinking about cybersecurity because no one would think to secure anything because. They didn't put anything personal in their computers, really. It was only like banks, you know, uh, those kind of things that needed something to protect. But for your own personal computer, all you could really do back then is type, maybe type a letter. <laughs> I mean, 
really. I mean, I play play some games. Yeah, right. But there was nothing that was incriminating or any way to steal or steal your identity back then. But now everything's become such so digital. Um, and I think, right. Uh, I thought about this too and watching it. More current movies that kind of took that same idea. There's a movie kind of like Enemy of the State with Will Smith and Gene Hackman back in the '90s. That was more of a current, almost a current, kind of a current mm-hmm. version of this. Of we can see it, we can, you know, how how much technology was taking over and how it seems innocent, but can be very uh, dangerous if it falls in the wrong hands or you know taken over the wrong way. So, but yeah. And you think about movies like you know, I think it was a forerunner of a lot of those. The the very oh, first yeah. um, Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. where they mm-hmm. where they have the knock list, you know, and and you've got Tom Cruise's character who's you know breaks into the uh, oh yeah you know wherever that was being held, and and he he tries to download it from that computer, you know, and it's all very very high tech security. The security is is a uh, much much more yeah. intense than it was in the War Games era. I think so that's adapted as the movies have grown along, but the hacking's still been a big part of a yep. lot of those films. All right. So let's quickly talk about the critical reception. So we can only talk about how it, I mean, I think we both enjoyed it very much. Probably, uh, you know, I can't say it's one of my all time favorite eighties movies, but it definitely is in the conversation um, of a favorite. So, uh, but currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an approval rating of 93% based on 43 reviews with an average rating of 7.63 out of 10. I think that's pretty good. And then on Metacritic, the film has a weighted average score of 77 out of 100 based on 15 critics indicating generally favorable reviews. So um, once again, I think still a great movie. I think it's still worth seeing. Uh, we were talking, uh, Chris and I were talking to our friend Brian, who's much younger than we are, and uh, him trying to... Uh, having him be a part of the podcast after seeing it, he would have lots of questions of like, how does that work? Or how, why is that that way? So maybe for the millennials, they, they need uh, some older guys like us to kind of explain some stuff that happened. So it makes sense. But for us that lived during that time, it's, it's a good piece of nostalgia, I think. And uh, unfortunately sure, yeah, there was news. a sequel that was made, whether you knew or not. Uh, they made a sequel called war games, the dead zone in 2008 and uh, they actually it went straight to video and they packaged it with the original war games to commemorate its 25th year anniversary so um i haven't seen it uh reading the plot it seems to be kind of a modern reboot uh version uh and it didn't sound like it'd be very good at all so i I don't have any desire to watch it (laughs) no i i think you yeah. Once you've seen that plot, you know you've yeah, pretty much seen it's it. It's like that's not that's so. not really a movie I could see that could be rebooted, but just because the technology of the time is what made that movie what it is, and trying to right. put it in a current context doesn't really work the same. So you'd have to work a lot harder to make it make sense. I think so. Yeah, I think you know, notwithstanding the technology, the thing that makes war games oh, yeah. work yeah. is the characters and the story. And the idea of the, you know, the potential fear of, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the yeah. real global thermonuclear right. war, you know. Which yeah. Once again, yeah, ever that present, in the middle so. of the Cold War, that was a big, that was a big thing on everybody. And, you know, as kids, we, we didn't understand the seriousness of it as much as our parents did, I'm sure. But it was still something we heard about in school. We saw, you know, sure, it was yeah. on the news and things, you know, we, it, it was, it was a term that you heard and had some general 
idea of it now. Um, so right back then. So, yeah. all right, well, Chris has been fun having you here on the podcast. Appreciate you coming and hanging out and, uh, watching, watching the movie with us and, uh, sharing your thoughts. So, yep. Well, I'm sure I yeah, thanks for asking me. It's been fun. More fun eighties movies in the future. And so I uh, look forward to that. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. First, you can send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. That's M-O-V-I-V-I-E-W-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our show notes. Hey, and if you leave us a message, we may just use it for an upcoming mini-episode. Another way to reach us is the Movie Views Facebook group and Instagram. There you'll find news and reviews for current and upcoming movies, not just the 80s movies we talk about here. Also, be on the lookout for our next mini-episode. Each mini-episode offers some fun segments about the previous full episode, and we'll also introduce the next 80s flick we'll be watching and covering in the next episode. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia that we just weren't able to get a chance to talk about during this episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback.